You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Those of you guys wanted me to um, uh, campaign for, for presidency, I can't be the president because I wasn't born in this country. I know, it's a big disappointment, right? Um, I was born um, in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's made up these little boroughs, kind of like, you know, the Bronx or Brooklyn or whatever. And the place that I was born in is Kowloon. Everybody say Kowloon. It's a good place. Um, and in the 50s, um, my, my dad's family, who's uh, seven different kids on that side of the family, uh, their, their dad, the patriarch of our family, George Wong, uh, started this watch company out of a suitcase. So it's just a classic American dream in Kowloon, where he took one watch and sold it and turned it into two watches, and two watches turned into 27 watches, and then 27 watches turned into 27 watch shops throughout uh, Hong Kong. And uh, so that's a picture of Dai Bot. Uh, that's the oldest uncle who uh, you're not allowed to eat before until Dai Bot eats. And uh, there's uh, one of our stores, the Kowloon Watch Company there. Uh, in case I ever got lost, I was told as a little kid to say Gaolong Bilhong, and they were supposed to beam me up to the right spot so I could, you know, get found because there's a lot of Chinese-looking people in China, I'll tell you. Uh, so, um, and so, um, and so nowadays, uh, because of the democratic revolution and, and obviously just the fact that we're looking at our time on iPhones, um, the watch company is starting to become more and more online, liquidated and, and downsizing, but it's a good run and um, really important part, I think, of my heritage, of, of my family's heritage. And so that was my question of the day for you, you know, like George Wong turning two watches into five, like, did you ever have a dream? Something um, that you live for, or maybe even something you would die for, something that when you thought about it, you better not think about it too late at night, because you might just stay up until two in the morning, because you just start rolling, and once you start rolling, you can't stop. Have you ever had something that just captures your attention, your mind, maybe even an injustice that makes other things seem small? in light of this thing that seems so big that grips you? Have you ever had something that's um, so moving that um, in previous seasons where it was hard to get out of bed, it's almost now hard to go back to bed because there's so much in your spirit, in your soul that's, that's burning inside of you? Um, when we look at the pages of Scripture, it turns out, turns out the reason why we dream that way is because God is a dreamer. Um, God dreams, and... Um, and really, if you look at all the different pages of Scripture, it's not because of five dreams or seven dreams or even two dreams. There's really one dream on God's heart from the beginning to the end. Um, and every page is soaked with this dream, and this is what the dream sounds like. God's dream is that the nations would be in Jesus. This is the, the heart of God. This is the dream of God, um, is that, that all, the, all the colorful flags, all the colorful foods, all the colorful cultures in this world um, would not lose their color but would come under this one reign and rule, this umbrella of Jesus, a multicolored, multi-gifted, multi-generational church being brought to bow low to Jesus. That weapons and warfare and, and the things that we would hold against each other, either micro or macro, would be put aside, that the Holy Spirit would draw us together, be brought together home, enemies made brothers in Jesus. That famine and sword and calamity and all the destruction that finds us um, that all of that would be ended in the name of Jesus. This is what um, Revelation 7 paints a picture for, one of the passages that speaks of God's dream. Verse 9, after this I looked, John the, the prophet says this, um, and there before me was a great multitude 
I mean, it wasn't just 144,000. It was countless numbers of people, countless numbers of colors and languages and, and ethnicities, a multicolored family, great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God. Every nation has a name. Every name has a story of rescue, of personal salvation. Who sits on the throne and is to the Lamb? So uh, if you're joining us here, we're going through the structure of the book of Acts is three parts. Um, Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. The phase that we're in right now of 8 through 11 is the middle phase of the sandwich. It's the hybrid phase. The first phase is 100% Jewish. The last phase is 0% Jewish, but right here in the middle, where we are in the middle of that sandwich, is the hybrid phase. It's the 50% Jewish. The story we've been reading about is a church in transition, a church that is changing, that is evolving, not by revolution, but by evolution. And so we're in this church of transition. And in this chapter, chapter 11, that we're going to read today, we're actually going to see why there's such a commotion in transition. I mean, why would we have to go from the place that we know is home to go to the place that is more unfamiliar, more uncertain, more unfriendly, more strange, more challenging, more threatening? Why would God call his people away from safety and into danger? And here's why, because the transition is where the dream comes true. And so at the end of this, the, the church that uh, Will was pronouncing, Antioch, Antioch is the name of the church. Antioch is the, is the birthplace, really, of God's dream. It is the first multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-gifted church. In other words, Antioch is the place where the nations are being brought low in front of Jesus. Antioch is the place in the Bible, the first time that the word Christian is ever used in the Bible is attached to this church in Antioch, which means that Christian, which was actually a derogatory term that the nations would use against this church, is this answer to the question, what do you call a group of people that doesn't lose its culture but still fits under Christ? Oh, that's right, you call them a Christian. They're not not African, they're not not Italian, they're not not Jewish, they're not not Asian, but all of that comes under this subcategory, but in Christ. It is a multicolored, a unified diversity that's going on, and all of that combines into, out of that many, into one, into this oneness, so much so that when famine hits this church, their offering saves not only the Jews but the Gentiles as well from starvation. So all that to say, I kind of wanted to um, call out this elephant in the room, you know, being a Southerner here for the last uh, 17 years. Uh, used to be up north in Indiana, moved down here about 2005. It felt like a different fishbowl for sure. And I almost forgot, you know, what it's like before moving down here because you just start swimming. But I remember distinctly coming out of Indiana and coming into the South and realizing Whereas revealing yourself in the, as a Christian in the North was a unifying thing, revealing yourself as a Christian in the South is divisive. It might be the elephant in the room, and that might not be what you experienced, what I experienced. There was this light that would go off when you would say, when you work at Starbucks, hey, I'm a Christian, this light goes off, and all of a sudden, that's the doorway to unity. But when you say you're a Christian down here, all of a sudden, these eyes start rolling because it's a doorway to rivalry. And now I'm not evangelizing the lost. I'm constantly trying to re-evangelize people that are in the church to come and be part of my subcategory and culture so that I can, I can prove my... It's like in a, in, a, in, a, in a group of brothers and sisters, what do we want to... We don't want to blend in. We want to stand out. So I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to make you become more of the miracles type of Christian. Not like, you know, those other Christians that aren't real Christians. Like, I'm going to make sure 
by the time you, you talk to me, we're going to be in miracle mode, right? Or I'm going to be the real Christian. I'm the real Christian for the lost, you know? I'm really the one that preaches the four laws, and I'm out, you know, preaching, right? Or I'm going to be the Bible Christian, and you don't know the Bible, and so I'm the real Christian. And so there's this Christian rivalry, whereas the word Christian should create unity. All of a sudden in the South, why is it creating rivalry, right? And so here's, here's, in a nutshell, all I can come up with it, and this is my working theory, is that the problem in the South is actually really ironic, because the problem in the South is not that there's not enough Christians, it's that there's too many. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. And we're all trying to get to the top of the heap because there's only so many, you know, churches and platforms and all this stuff, right? So there's this rivalry instead of unity that goes on, okay? And so here's what I think, here, here's what I, think I come to in terms of, of the problem. What's different about the South than almost anywhere else, even in this country and this world? Do we have a very unique, distinct thing that goes on in the South? What is different about the South? This is what I come out of that math problem. The difference of the South is, unlike any other place in the world, is that mission is optional. That in any other place in the world... I have to go and either run and hide from non-believers, from the hostile, from, from the angry, you know, from the disenfranchised, from the hurting. But in the South, I got to go find those people. It's not that persecution doesn't exist in the South. It's not that non-Christians don't exist in the South. It's just that it's optional for me to be there. And in that, the problem is not that there's not enough Christians. It's just there's too many Christians in one spot at one time. And so here's, here's my stupid little illustration. This one summer... I was like six. I was totally into the Ninja Turtles. And uh, my mom, she went out and got all the different popsicles, you know, the different colors of popsicles in the summertime. And so I was a Ninja Turtle, and I was like, I don't care about those red popsicles. I want the green popsicles. So you go to my freezer, and I would, like, go through all the other popsicles, but, like, the green ones, I was eating the green popsicles. I mean, in May, I was eating the green popsicles at the pool. June, I'm eating the green popsicles. July, I'm eating the, I'm just nonstop green popsicles. And I can remember, like, it was yesterday. This is like a placebo effect, I guess. Of, it's in the middle of July, and I ate green popsicle number 298. And my body was like, 297 was fine, but 298 is just too much. And I just yacked green popsicle. I yacked green popsicle everywhere that I was walking. I couldn't even keep another green popsicle down. Okay, so all of that, right, as a, as a silly middle school illustration to say this is, if you're sitting here today and you're experiencing what I'd like to call today a spiritual nausea, like, I just don't know if I can listen to that song one more time and mean it. I don't know if I can listen to, like, one more sermon and not fall asleep and actually act like I care. Like, I just, I don't know if I can listen. I don't know if I can go to church and pat one more Christian on the back and pretend like I'm happier than ever. Like, if you're experiencing a spiritual nausea, it might actually point not to spiritual sickness, but to spiritual health. That if there's two groups of people, if you're in this church right now, and, you, and this is a breath of fresh air, and you are so excited to be here, and you are being fed, you are being fed the Word of God, you are being introduced to the Spirit of God, you're making friends with the people of God, then I'm just saying, come in and stay. But here's the second group that I'd like to say. If you're experiencing spiritual nausea, it might not actually be sickness, it might be health. Because it might mean that God's dream, that's too big for any of us, is rooted down in your stomach, it's captivating you, and it's too big to stay in here. And that maybe spitting us out of his mouth is not actually the worst thing in the world because it means that we're not, we're not homogenizing this one place, but we're going out to the mission and the vision of what God's called us to, which is to be a multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-generational global church. What if our spiritual nausea is actually a spiritual kind of health? This is my working premise I'll work through for this chapter, chapter 11, on the screen. This is what I believe 11 would tell us 
in a room and in a city like this, in the belt buckle of the Bible belt or whatever, is that the mission of God, although it is in the South, like this is a unique scenario that we can actually believe that this is true, but it's not, is the mission of God is not optional. If our demographic creates a false scenario that creates impractically this opportunity for us to make it optional, it doesn't mean that it's optional, right? The mission of God is not optional. It is essential. And then secondly, that mission is not only for the salvation of lost, but the transformation of Christians. That the frontier of the gospel making its way to the ends of the earth is not just for them, but it's for us. Because we need it. Because we need to see the hand of God, the heart of God. So here we are in Acts chapter 11, just the last time on the episode. Paul and uh, Corny Cornelius, by the way, that's a meme. It's corn. When I said that, I think like 30%, I split the room like cilantro. It's this really cute kid. He just keeps saying, it's corn. So anyways, that was my superlative for Cornelius. They get set up on this blind date through a dream. Peter's coming back to the church because the dream's not just for Peter, it's for the church. And the dream becomes a vision. But out of that, the vision is not just this new ideal and paradigm. It becomes this imperative for the church, not just to stay a dream or a vision, but to become a mission, which is Antioch. So Acts 11, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we read that, and we're like, man, that's pretty prude. You just like can't even go to dinner. Your nose is that you know, stuck up. You can't go to dinner. Like Eating, table fellowship, and going into somebody's house was a very intimate endeavor that you just don't show up to somebody's house you know, for a birthday party, for your kid's six-year-old birthday party. Like Going to somebody's house is like going on a vacation with somebody. So I just want to warn everybody, the campaign election cycle is coming up. And we're going to be tested on our sanctification again. So I hope that you're ready, right? Okay, and you're going to see something on the news and you're going to be like, I can't believe that this is happening. And the reality is it's always happening. They're just showing it to you now because there's an agenda. So let's just get that out of the way. That's where we're headed. Okay, so let's be civilized. And so it's like, why are you going on vacation with Joe Biden, Donald Trump, right? Why are you going on vacation with the others, with the enemy, right? Why are you going on vacation with with these people, okay? And uh, so he says, listen, This dream, I don't think it's just for me. I think it's for us. I'm going to tell you the whole story. I'm going to start from the beginning. Verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance, and I saw a vision. Something like a large sheet is let down from heaven by its corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked in, and I saw four-footed animals on the earth. Lots of things from Leviticus 11. Good Jewish boys and girls shouldn't eat. Of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. And I heard this voice saying, Peter, get up kill and eat. I remember, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. She's like, now look, you know how parents, you know, like when they just keep broken recording you, they're just like, you know, like make your bed, make your bed, make your bed. There's just like a repetition. This is what the Bible's doing. We don't want a mission because it's not just a dream. It's a, it's a vision. It's not just a vision. It's a mission, right? It comes true in Antioch. So it's happening over and over and over again. And Peter's like, I'm gonna start from the beginning. Look, this was a riddle to me too. Before I, before I saw what God was saying and what he meant when he was saying this in the middle of his trance, I thought it was a riddle too. Because basically, this is what the riddle is. How can you wash your sheets in the mud? Right? The sheet is this covenant idea, and on the sheet is these unclean animals. And the reality is, is that when you go take your white Bed Bath & Beyond sheets down to the mud and you scrub around the mud, the sheets are going to get muddy. The mud's not going to get clothy. Okay? It's not going to get bleached. Right? That was going to sound bad if I said it the wrong way. 
right? So this is this, he's like, listen, I thought it was a riddle as well. I thought it was a riddle as well. But then, then I saw what he meant. Verse 9, the voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. So this is the, this is the Sunday school riddle. What's the answer to every Sunday school riddle? It's Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus' holiness is so holy that when he touches unholy, it becomes holy. Jesus' clean is so clean, when he touches unclean, it becomes clean. Jesus can wash his sheets in the mud and make the mud clean. This is the power. And this changes everything. This redefines everything. Now, this is very important. I want to harp on this for a minute. None of this conversation is erasing the line between clean and unclean. This is the imperative. It's like, you, you ate with the unclean. You're eating with the enemy. That still matters. What's changing is that there isn't no friends and no enemies. What's changing is the line between the friend and the enemy is being redefined by something new. If Jesus makes unclean clean, then the line's different. The line of the circle is different. So verse 15, so as I begin to speak, this is what the new line is defined by, the Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning, and then I remembered what the Lord said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gifts as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could not stand in God's way? So here's what he's realizing. It's there on the screen. It's the pivotal testing point for this church through all the transition. I am realizing this fact, that Jesus plus nothing is 100% everything. The mission is for the outsider and for the insider. And what the insider is realizing, what the insider is realizing is the only thing that matters is Jesus and nothing added or subtracted could add anything to or from Jesus. Jesus minus my culture, Jesus minus my food, Jesus minus my preference, Jesus minus my planning, Jesus minus my strategy, Jesus minus everything is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything in Jesus. This is what the new line is being defined by, okay? So now I want you to notice something. This revelation that comes with this riddle does not erase the line. It redefines it. I went to a counselor one time, and he was talking to me about, you know, relationships and healthy relationships. And the very first thing that he starts talking about is boundaries. And I'm like, sir, how is it that relationship, which is fundamentally based on connection, is first and foremost defined by boundaries? And he says, real simple, look at it this way. If you have a next-door neighbor who is not cutting their grass, and there's no fence between you and that neighbor, and you want to be a, ni a nice person and go over there and mow his grass, why is the fence important to be between you and him? Well, the answer is simple. It's because if there's no fence, if there is a fence, I'm actually going and mowing my neighbor's lawn. But if there is no fence, I'm mowing my lawn. The boundaries is the issue of love because love can't do something for someone else if there is no something from somewhere else. In other words, Christianity, he says, is not codependency. That there has to be a line, right, for love to exist. Because if the line doesn't exist, then it's not love. It's no longer your yard, so therefore it's no longer my love to serve you in your yard. Right? So boundaries are critical in this whole definition of thing. So all that to say is that, you know, we talk about Jesus eating with sinners, but him eating with sinners was not about erasing the line. It was about redefining the line. It was about redefining the line. Think about the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler, he says, hey, man, there's this rich guy, and he just, like, idolized this stuff, and he never came and followed Jesus. And it says the rich young ruler heard what he said walked away sad. You know what Jesus didn't do? Chase him. Jesus had the line, and he would not chase him. When he stood up and said in front of this biggest crowd he ever preached to, he said, you had to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all walked away. You know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't chase them because there's a line. There's a line, okay? And so that's the idea is that Jesus is eating with sinners, but by his eating with singers, sinners, as modern Christian Americans, we can't reinterpret that to say Jesus is promoting tolerance. Jesus is not eating with sinners to promote tolerance. He's, he's eating with sinners because he can make mud clean. And that means that he is for transformation, not for tolerance. The highest goal of sitting with sinners is not 
tolerance, it's transformation. So I want to read this passage, and it's like, it's important for us. 1 Corinthians 5, this is Paul talking now, later on when the church makes its way. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Jesus eats with sinners, right? But not under the guise that we're Christians and just condoning sin without repentance. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with Christians who are continually to be sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolatries. In that case, you'd have to leave the world, says Paul. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate in terms of family is family, right? And outsiders are outsiders because there is a line. It's just redefined. That you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer. What business, this is verse 12, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not... Uh, are we not supposed to judge those who are inside the church? It's not that we erase the line between right and wrong. It's the goal isn't tolerance. It's transformation. Verse 13, God will judge the outsider, expel the wicked person from among you. So people say, man, that's super hurtful. Here's the deal. You're going to hurt somebody. It's just a matter of who do you want to hurt and how do you want to hurt? Because here's one of the most hurtful things. One of the most hurtful things is inviting somebody to the tale of fellowship in Christianity, making them think they're following Jesus because they're next to you, but they're far from God because there's no line. What's even more harmful than, than, than drawing a line around the table of fellowship of the church of who's in and who's out, right, is, is actually having somebody who's new in the faith see somebody who should be far in their faith, completely upside down and backslidden, and think that that is the example of Christ, and then get watered down. Or here's the worst, here's the worst. Because every time that, right, every time that, in, that justice isn't, established, like in any kind of a society, anytime that sin isn't confronted within the church, the voiceless always get hurt first. Somebody in that group has, is having to put up with that person that's in the church that you're not handling, but guess what? They're not on top, they're on bottom. And so now they're going to have to get like led and corrected and sit next to like all of this stuff that is what 1 Corinthians 5 is saying is not clean and therefore cannot be part of Christ. You know what the Holy Spirit's first name is? Holy Hey, nice to meet you. Last name, Spirit. First name, Grace. No, the first name of the Spirit is holiness. And the attitude and the definition of the Spirit is therefore holiness. And so here's what's not happening, right? Uh, sociologists say you have uh, an empathy circle of about 15 to 30 people. You can't afford it. I know you're an extrovert, but you just, even the most extrovert person in the room can only care about about 30 people. And who you have in that circle is one of the most important decisions that you will make in your life. Because who you have in that circle is who influences you, who you influence, and what you are saying, right, is, is what's in and what's out. And so what's happening in this passage is not that there's no line, it's that there's a new line. And the new line, which used to be set by circumcision and diet and regulation and culture, is now being defined by Christ. This is how we define the new line. Where is the spirit working? Okay, so let me show you this angle scale. Um, and uh, this is a chart that I've shown before. You don't have to see it in the back row. There's blue and there's pink and there's orange and there's green. And basically what this chart I want you to see is that in this room and outside this room, everybody is on this pathway of negative 10 to zero all the way up to positive 10. This is called the angle scale, right? And, 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 and what you see in the life of Jesus is everyone everywhere is invited to that table, right? But the, but the, but the differentiator of who is with Jesus and who is following Jesus is whether or not people are walking with him. So here's, here's what I think this would say to us. This is what I think would say to us is that when we think about our circle, our empathy circle of who is in and who is out and who we're paying attention to and who we're not paying attention to, the question should not be asking where 
somebody is, the question we should be asking is, where is somebody headed? Jesus had all kinds of time for all kinds of people, but he didn't have time for the people that didn't follow. So if you have somebody that's antagonistic to Jesus or somebody that is ready to go to seminary, all those are great people to have into your circle only on the, on the presumption of which direction are they headed. It's, it's the activity of the Spirit. Here it is, right? In the end of verse 18, they heard this and they had no further objections. Why? Because they saw the activity of the Holy Spirit. Is people meeting Jesus where they are but not staying there, that they're walking. And so you say, wait, so you want me to go home and just write all my friends, here's my mom and here's my uncle and all that stuff, and just put you know, labels on them and numbers? No, I'm not saying that. Here's what I think this could take home for us, is that the way that we would draw our circle is by what's at the center of the circle. If you, if you, if me, if we commit to the continual daily preaching of the gospel, Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ was ascended, Christ is coming back. If you will continue to preach the gospel in the middle of your, center, middle of your circle, here's what I could probably promise you, is that the people that are attracted to Jesus are going to stay with you and the people that aren't are going to go. And that's why preaching the gospel is not just important for, for, for the lost, it's important for Christians. Because if you stop preaching Jesus, you're going to have the wrong people drawn to you and the wrong people rejected from you. So this is not just for the lost, this is for us. And you preaching, the, you do that one step of preaching the gospel, then all the people that are following Jesus are going to come with you and all the people that aren't ready are going to go and maybe they'll come back later. But that's not for me to decide. So it's not the erasing of the, of the line, it's letting him draw the new line. It's letting him draw the line, not by culture, not by your preference, not by what makes you comfortable, but by the work of the Spirit. Not where somebody is, but where they're headed where their next step is. Okay, so we're cooking. Verse 11, or verse 19. So the dream that Peter's bringing back is becoming a vision, and the vision is becoming a mission. And, and dreams don't become visions, and visions don't become missions unless there's leaders. leaders. Leaders are essential parts. You and I, being influencers, John Maxwell says leaders just influence. You and me influencing our world, God is moving and asking us to join, and he will wait for us to join him when he's moving. And, and so leadership is a big deal. So it starts talking about leaders. So verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews. So those of you guys that were, you know, it's a heartbreaking part of the story. Stephen doesn't get to see the fruit of his sacrifice. But just because you don't see the fruit of your sacrifice doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Like, what is it? The guy that led Billy Graham to Jesus, didn't know, didn't ever go to a crusade of Billy Graham. Like, you, don't, you never know the outcome of small steps of Dorcas obedience. So Stephen was killed. He doesn't get to see the fruit of his labor, but nonetheless, it's there. And the legacy of the leader is birthed in new leaders. One was a friend of his and one was an enemy of his, but both of them foment, uh, both grow and become leaders in the church. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they go to Antioch, the place where God's dream is coming true. And they began to speak to the Greeks, not just the Jews, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that was the prejudice of the Jews is that when they heard Jesus say all nations, they thought, oh, all the Jewish people in the nations. No, he's saying, it's not that you have to become Jewish to, be Jesus, to follow Jesus, that all people everywhere, all the time are invited to follow Jesus just as they are. So it's preaching directly. It's going around the Jewish covenant into the new covenant right to the Greeks. Verse 21, the Lord the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and also turned to the Lord. Then verse 22 says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent to Bar Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived there, he saw what grace of God had, the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, now watch this, full of spirit and faith, and a great number of people uh, were 
a great number of people were brought to the Lord uh, because of them. And so um, I want you to notice something re- really, really important uh, is that, is that in, in, in Acts chapter 11, when a dream becomes a mi- uh, vision and a vision becomes a mission, that it's not just this osmosis uh, tr- transition that happens within the area of Antioch, that it comes with leadership, that it comes with people. And notice that the way that Barnabas is described as the leader for this hour is that Barnabas is not sent there to be a critic. He's sent there to be an encourager. The number one word that we can associate to Barnabas's life is that he is somebody that goes into a place that might be lacking in courage in the gospel and give it courage. Anybody felt that before? Anybody felt how hard it is to do anything when you're discouraged? And how weightless it feels when you're running with courage? When you're running a race, you don't need somebody to say, hey, pick up your left foot, pick up your right foot. Like, you don't need critics, you need encouragement. You need people to come alongside you, right? And so this is my, my understanding. I, I think we need to catch this because the church is a field, it's not a factory. It's not for engineers. It's for, it's for encouragement, right? It's the place where this, this, this vine is beginning to grow up and it needs, it, it needs encouragement. And so this is the picture that I get that leadership, according, you know, in Barnabas's model, is not about... Uh, it, leadership is more about seeing what God is doing without stumbling over what he's not yet to do. This is what, this is what I'm seeing in Barnabas's life, that the following the, the, the model of leadership according to Barnabas is that leadership is the ability, like everybody can come in to your family right now and talk about how crazy your kids are. It is not hard to come into a new situation and criticize what's not going right. That's the easiest thing in the world. That doesn't make you a leader. That just makes you picky, right? What makes you a leader is to, in the middle of that chaos, See what God is doing and pay attention to that and tell people how to pay attention to that because all this is going to get handled if we can only identify, this is what he's saying, not the work that the church did, but the grace that God had done. How many of you guys need a Barnabas leader in your life not to come in and criticize, but to see what God is doing in your life, not flatter you, but encourage you towards it, encourage you towards it. Man, I'm running short on time, but here I go. Um, I'll just tell this one story. I had three stories. I'll tell one story. So... Uh, this high schooler uh, from town, um, I was meeting up with him, you know, over the summer, and uh, he was talking about um, this, this small group ministry that he had started. It wasn't from the school, it wasn't from SCA, it wasn't from City Lights. It was just this small group thing that a passion caught the heart of a leader, and the dream became a vision, and the vision became a mission. This is, a, this is like a 16-year-old, 17-year-old guy, that lots of 17-year-old guys are doing lots of stuff, but they're not leading Bible studies. So he gets up at six in the morning, and his heart is for discipleship. If you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. If you're not following Jesus, you're not in the circle. Like, we're going. Like, this isn't just about me making you happy. We're going for it. How you know, sometimes when you raise the bar, people meet the bar. And all these kids that are eating chummy bunny the whole time in youth group are actually now on fire because you called them up to something because people need to be encouraged and challenged, right? That's the idea, right? So they show up, and guess what happens? This is what happens. In the span of, I think it was like basically six months, the duration of this, of this, of this school year, that group not only meets continually for the rest of the year at 6 a.m. in the morning, but like 10 other spinoff groups multiply out of this thing. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror like, what do I even get paid for? Like I sit here noodling over the smallest little, please, Lord, let's get two more group leaders. Will you pretty please lead this group, right? When this kid whose like job is to play Xbox has a revival of small groups in his school getting paid zero money, if only to show us that we don't bring increase, God brings increase. That our job is to tend the field. It's not to run the factory. And that you can't recreate or create or extinguish or start what God is doing once he starts it. And guess what happens? 
The school comes along and says, oh, no, we don't really like this. We don't really like that. I'm not really sure that theology is the right way, blah, 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 blah. And they want to keep it safe. That's what I want. I want to keep it safe. I'm a pastor. I don't want anything dangerous. But sometimes safety is dangerous, right? And sometimes people are so long in the bubble that they get nauseous and they lose their faith out of it. So which one do you want, safety or danger, if Jesus is there? So he goes there, right? And what he needs, he doesn't need criticism. He needs encouragement. He needs somebody to say, not left, right, left, right. Keep going. You're going the right direction. I can't produce what you're producing. I'm glad that God didn't put me in that school because I wouldn't have done it. He chose you to be a leader in that school because what he commits, right, what he calls, he equips for on the go. So this is just a chart that I want you to look at, and we're going to have to close up here. But um, I want you to think about your circle of influence, who's in your 30, who's in your 15. Who's in the thing is almost everything. Just the idea of God saying Jesus plus nothing is everything does not mean that everything is Jesus. It does not mean that there is no challenge. And so what encouragement, I think, looks like, as he says, he encouraged the brothers in what God was doing and also called them to stay true to it, is, is a cross-section of a matrix between celebration and challenge. We've all been in a place where there is no leadership. That's the DMV. No leadership, DMV. <laughs> there's no goal. There's no culture. There's no encouragement. There's no relationship. It's just one step away from purgatory. It's awful, right? <laughs> That's apathy, right? The celebration culture passionate and as emotional as it may be, does not create transformation because all it's doing is flattering people. And there's a difference between emotion and passion. And it will burn out. I've been there before, you've been there before. The result of a stress culture is stoicism. Not too high, not too low. Just keep marching the orders. That's not the picture either. That's not the picture either. The leadership culture is encouragement where there's celebration to notice and see what God is doing, but also not failing to call people up to what they are called to join them in. That's what a leader is doing. If you are a leader, what the church needs more than money is leadership. More than money is, lot, is people that lay their life down, is models and examples of Jesus. And they're asking, first of all, what can we celebrate? I know there's lots of things going wrong, but before I say anything else, if I really care about this, this, this place, this ministry, this church, then I'm not going to start stumbling over what's not happened yet before I start celebrating what is happening. I have no business talking about what's not happening if I can't see what is happening, because I can't steward it. If I, have, if I can't see what's happening, I don't have vision. And what is a leader? Somebody that can see what God is doing, but not using that to coddle and make cozy and protect from safety or from danger, right? But to challenge and say, how can we join him in what he's already doing? All right, coming through Acts 11. So not just one leader, but many leaders come in verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Prophecy is for today. There's five gifts, and prophecy is all about proportions. You ever see Zoolander when they go down there and they just start spraying gas on each other? Gasoline's great when it's in cars, but you can't get to Montana in gasoline. You need a car. You need a steering, right? So you can't just spray it. You can't solve every problem with prophecy, right? So it's all about ratios. You can't go anywhere without gas, but you can't spray people with gas and go to California, okay? Right? So it's about proportions, and yes, prophecy is somewhat just about applying the Bible. Every time you pick up the Bible, you're prophesying. It's applying the Bible, which means it's foretelling. But according to this passage and other ones in Acts, which these are not apostles, it's also foretelling. It's telling the future. It's, a, it's, it's applying the Bible, and it's telling the future. It makes us all super uncomfortable because who knows if you're playing God, and there's a lot, we all know the problems. But the issue is just because gasoline can set a house on fire doesn't mean you don't use it for your car, right? So this is the deal. It's about ratios and wisdom. Prophecy is a wisdom issue. 
It's just not more prophecy. It's like what kinds and how, and let us chase love with prophecy. That's how this works, okay? So here's the rerun. I don't know if you caught it. I'm going to read it. It spreads out the entire Roman world. This is the, the Bible, or the, the church. Verse 29, the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. In other words, your famine is my famine too. If I'm hungry, then you'd feed me, and if, if you're hungry, I'm going to feed you. Verse 30, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas all. So did you catch the rerun? What just happened is there, it's been a rerun episode. You almost thought it was the same thing, that Peter's dream was a lot like Joseph's dream. You see those two things? That both dreams have this vision for the nations to be brought low. The stars would be brought low, that, the, that, the, that the, the, the harvest would be brought low. And the same thing is happening with Cornelius, that, that Jews and Gentiles are like are brought low under grace. The ground is level at the cross. So the dream is the same. There's a brother that died in the issue of Joseph. At least he was sold into slavery and he should have died. And then there's a brother that died, Stephen, that was died. And out of that seed comes a resurrection so that the brothers would come back in unity and come home to be brought together in Jesus. And lastly, that not only that the Gentile world was fed, but the Jews were fed as well. It's in the blessing of Greenville that we're blessed. It's in the feeding of the nations that the Jews are seeing. So there's a way of saying this, and, and not to mess with soteriology, I'm just saying like the church of Jerusalem was saved, but here's the deal. When it comes to the famine, if the church of Jerusalem doesn't go out to go see the church of Antioch saved, then it doesn't have any food in the middle of the famine. In other words, that the, that the gospel that made its way to Antioch not only saved Antioch, but saved Jerusalem as well. Do you catch what I'm saying here? Is that mission is not just for the lost, it's for you and me. If we are not on mission, I was speaking to a lady at a gas station yesterday. Her name's Teresa. She was at QT. I prayed for her. Uh, she had this sweet little word for Ollie. She was like, you stay by your dad. She just kept saying, you stay by your, by your dad. I wish I could have more time to tell the whole story of how, how it all worked out. But this, this is the point that I'm reminded of, is that at that moment, not only is Teresa seeing the hand and the feet of Jesus, but I'm seeing the hand and the feet of Jesus, right? I can't be living my faith off of 15-year-ago testimony. I need to continue to see God's hand. And if I'm not out there, I won't see the testimony. So it's not just for Teresa, it's for me. I need to see her through Jesus' eyes because it's important that if I don't see her through Jesus' eyes, I'll forget how Jesus sees me. That I have the eyes of Jesus on mission. When I'm, when I'm going out on mission, when I'm going out on mission, I'm seeing the heart of God, that the, the gospel is for everyone everywhere and not just me and my little clique and my club and what I want. So it's, it's essential. It's not just for the salvation, but the transformation of the church. That The church is not spiritually nauseous, but goes out and sees the dream of God released. So these are my questions. I'll be very, very quick. <laughs> the questions uh, that you might talk with your spouse or your small group is simply this. Where's your circle? I think that I come down to this passage and I realize that all of us have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of energy. We're like those little Lego bricks and once we're full, we're full. So once you fill up with those bricks, that's the most important decisions that you're making in your life. So who is it, what's your circle look like? And is your circle defined by Christ or culture? Is it defined by something else? The church needs a mission just as much as the lost needs a mission. You and I need people. All the people that are in our circle, we only have a certain amount of time. And, it, and the question is not where are the people in our circle with regard to faith, it's where are they walking? Where are they headed? Because Jesus would invite everybody, but he only stayed with those that followed. So who is in your circle? And that's one of the most important things that's going to determine how your next 365 days go. Number two, who's at the center of your circle? What you're celebrating and what you're challenging is telling you all about. Is it you or is it him? Is it your preferences? Is it your culture? Is it your conveniences? Is it your safety? Or is it the mission of Jesus? And lastly, as a leader in this room, because you are a leader, one of the most important things you can do, aside from criticism, is to celebrate what God is doing and challenge people up to where he's going. 
What does it look like in small little ways to celebrate and challenge inside of your circle? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 